welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is episode 5757. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from uh, just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh from Cartagena, Colombia. Wow. How's it going, Jay? (laughs) Cartagena. That's so cool. You got to tell us about this. Tell us about Colombia. What are you doing there? And what's it like? Just hanging out. Um living with here with my family for the summer and uh some of it is kind of like the picturesque uh Colombian era you know hacienda style architecture and horse carriages in the streets and other parts of it are horrifying terrifying ghettos and it's a nice mix um and then the, you know of course there's like the Miami style strip for all the tourists and we live in the old town of Cartagena, which is like the historic district. So it's like half tourist. It's not as touristy as the beach area, but it's less touristy than the ghetto. And my wife's like the polar opposite of EJ. She wants her, like Las Vegas is her worst nightmare. And (laughs) her, her style of travel is she doesn't like to do any of the touristy things. She wants to live how the locals live. So we rented an apartment here in Cartagena where we're going to live for a month and we're going to move to Medellin for a month and then we're going to move to Bogota for a month and then I'll be back. Wow. So are you working on a film or is this just, um, just a family awesome summer experience for you guys? Just a family experience. I am looking for projects to work on. I'm going to make a movie with my kids. I brought like an inexpensive camera with me and we're going to make a little movie together me and my two kids and then also um there's a documentary about these kids who are uh who are kidnapped for sex trade slavery basically work here in cartagena and so i've been in contact with those filmmakers who um are kind of in post-production for their film to see if i can shoot any b-roll for them while i'm down here so because they're from utah and and LA. And so because I'm here, I can help them out by getting extra shots they may have missed. So I've offered my services for that as well. Wow. That sounds like a heavy film, man. Yeah. That'd be hard to watch. The abolitionists. I would recommend people check out the trailer. If you, I think the website may be abolitionist movie, but if you just Google the abolitionist documentary, there's a little trailer up there. It's pretty heavy. Oh my goodness. It's good. It looks great. Yeah, from Jerry Mullen, um, who's a guy I know. We interviewed him for Clean Flicks, um, but he's one of the producers of Schindler's List and Minority Report and Jurassic Park, and um, he's the producer of this film. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Nice. Wow. But yeah, so I'm I'm going on little excursions, uh, and like the one that we were supposed to be on this week that we're going to go on next week is going to be kind of like, um, touristas. And then I've got one after that that's going to be kind of like The Ruins. And uh, then after that one, that's going to be kind of like, I still know what you did last summer. So it should oh. be fun. <laughs> nice. I keep, when when we talk about you being down there, I keep picturing Teristas. So I hope, heaven forbid, I hope none of that happens. So. My main Colombian movie, Touchstone, is just Romancing the Stone. So I, I'm quoting 
That's like, what I'm. That's what I kept. When you said Cartagena, that's immediately what yeah. popped in the mind is romantic. Joel Wilder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Pepe, my I don't team. think the movie was actually filmed there. But... No, I think it's filmed in Mexico, but they got. I think they shot um, like exteriors and stuff here at the Walled nice. City. So yeah, I'm living in that Walled City where Michael Douglas fights the crocodile at the end. So. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. That's very cool. Now I have some context. Um. I know the listeners have missed hearing from you, Josh. It's been a while, so welcome back. And uh, Dr. So Shock. sad I missed last week. I apologize to everyone. I I would just had arrived in Columbia, and I'm honestly more sad that I missed the State of the Zombie episode than probably any episode of any podcast I've ever not been a part of. So I'm really <laughs> bummed yeah. out. But. Yeah, Kyle brought it as usual, but I'm as sure. As usual, yeah, and I was sorry to miss it too. I was just, I don't even have as good as an excuse that I went to another country. Yeah, well. You know, I, just, I was just tired. You just went to but, bed. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I went to bed, but I was doing everything I could to stay up. But you know what? It, It's good because, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, he brought it. It was, uh, it's just tremendous. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Dave? What, what's been going on with you? I know the listeners have missed hearing from you too, of course. Uh, well, just pretty much the same. Um, you know, uh, one kind of interesting thing we did a um, on uh, Land of the Creeps the other night. We just did a sort of impromptu recording of uh, commentary for Jason X with Todd Farmer. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, the, the writer, and he had some uh, some interesting insights into the movie about how you know the humor was added uh, in response to the Scream franchise. Uh, you know, which was really obviously the, the, the big franchise at the time um, and how he had a different idea for how the spaceship would look and and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it was a lot of fun, I you bet. know, because that was that is sort of a I guess a guilty pleasure of mine um, is, is Jason X. I do. I do enjoy that movie. Um, and it was fun to just sort of sit down and talk to him about that. Uh, other than that, yeah, just writing and uh and watching. Do you know um, what number that Land of the Creeps episode is so we can it's, direct it's, people there? It's gonna, I think it's going to be a bonus episode. It's coming out this Friday, the, well, June 12th. Hmm. And I, it's just a bonus. It's just a commentary episode between episodes 201 and, or 101 and 102. Okay, cool. So same same release date as this particular episode. So I'll, Correct. I'll link it in the show notes so people okay. can catch that. That's very cool. Yeah. Good work, Land of the Creeps. Yeah, there. that was fun. That's that's the third time they've done a commentary. It's the first time I've been able to join in on them. Um, they also did commentaries for Drive Angry and for the My Bloody Valentine remake. With, nice. Uh, Mr. Farmer, seeing as he had penned those as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and he gets a, a fun role. In mm-hmm. the, right? <laughs> no. Yeah, oh, yeah, right <laughs> in My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> definitely a, a memorable one. And in Drive Angry. From what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of um, Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop, he'll actually be back with us next week in our next episode. And we were chatting about what we should do while we have the mad doctor, the zombie expert with us. And even though they're infected movies, we thought it would be really fun to review 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later with Kyle Bishop. Nice. So... That's going to be some hardcore podcasting, <laughs> so 
And nope. the Sandra, Sandra Bullock movie, 28 Days, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, that yes, too. Yeah, we're going to do that <laughs> That's going to be in there. <laughs> that's, the true, that's the true horror movie. That is a horror movie. That's <laughs> terrible. I can't say. I'm like, you know what? I've not seen it. It's not really good. It's not. You've seen it? Okay. Oh, yes, I have. It's not good. But yeah, a lot of people mix those up. That's hilarious, Josh. But so, yeah. So, everybody, if you want to, because we're going to be, you know, talking in-depth spoilers and everything. So, I just want to give everybody homework out there and watch 28 days and weeks with us this week in preparation for next Friday's episode. That'd be great. We'd love to have it. Okay, guys. Now, since the new horror film that's currently in theaters right now is Insidious Chapter 3, and since, at least in my theater, that was preceded by the trailers um, Sinister 2, which looks pretty promising, and the gallows, right? Um, I, which are both kind of ghost type movies. I wanted to ask you guys for your theories, because I have a theory on this too. But why do you think that there is such a huge flood of supernatural ghost type movies? Like, why are we doing so many movies? It seems like almost every. Every single like mainstream horror release in theaters is a supernatural type ghost movie. And so um I just wanted to kind of open it up and see what you think and then I'll give you my my theory. What do you have to say about that Dr. Shock? Well, I mean, I, I the what what pop, you know, off the top of my head, it's um it, you can make a PG-13 movie with ghosts and you can get the kids in there. And it's it's enough to to scare the hell out of them, um, you know. Uh, is the way I that's the first thing that, that leaps off. The, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is that you can make a PG thirteen ghost movie. You can't really do that with a slasher movie, um, or or any of the like the Saw type of torture porns that had come out. You know, from you know in the in the about ten years ago now, I guess. Um, so that's. Why I'm thinking, I'm thinking if they were, and then plus some of the more popular ones that have come along that have made the money are the ghost movies, like The Conjuring and um, the uh, Paranormal Activity uh, movies. So I think we're just sort of living in that uh, wake right now of the studios jumping on and saying, let's do all of these, you know, supernatural films. Yeah, I think you can directly trace it back to paranormal activity. Um, you know, when, when Saw and Hostel were the big thing, there were a lot of those types of movies. And, right. Um, I think Dave makes a great point. You do a film like Paranormal Activity, and people say, that didn't have to be rated R. Could have done that easily, done that PG-13, and made it just as scary. And so I think um, that opened, you know, and that's also really non-controversial. Like, you don't have to say, like, oh, well, the kids are copying killers, you know? Like, it's right. very easy to feel good if you're a big studio, you know, funneling in money from Colgate and Coca-Cola to say we're making this scary movie, but, you know, it's not going to be a dirty slasher. It's not, you know, and like, and so I think it's easy for them to kind of, like, pump this out as a product. And, and frankly, you know, ghost movies are some one of the oldest forms is I'm you know oldest forms of scare and so it's mm-hmm. a, it's a tried and true uh, way to to get some thrills and chills. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with what you guys said. I also would say 
I think they're very easy to make. Lots of them are done with sound mm-hmm. and with yeah. CGI. Yeah. And these movies are about what you hear or about the tone or the mood or the feeling, like how the yes. film feels rather than what you actually see. And for instance, you don't need to create a beast like an alien, like an alien, for example. Um, you don't, you need- don't have to have a tree that eats kids. You can just take right. that part right out of the movie. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. And if you look at... Uh, so I've I had been preparing this for weeks, and I thought it would be a little more revelatory than it ended up being, and so it was kind of a waste of time. But I hope somebody will find some use out of this. But um, I subscribed to the film magazine called Film Comment, and oh. a couple like two issues ago, I think they they had all of the box office numbers for all of the studios. You know, it was like this three page spread. It was pretty interesting. So I I thought it would be cool to go down through and pick out all of the mainstream horror releases. Some of these are indies, but I wanted to kind of line them up and rank and and see how they did and what ended up being in the top tier. And I'll, I'll just go down through here. Some of these are borderline horror. Some of these are not necessarily horror, but I'm just including it just for the sake of argument. So, so you know, we'll we'll table that tired old argument for now okay everybody so but the number one the most lucrative um do you guys want to guess this is kind of fun for 2014 it's kind of of fun kind of fun is a poltergeist oh that's 2014 um geez i don't know man okay oh babadook hopefully oh then now see that was a good guess i'm really glad you said that but that was actually in the less than one million it it raked oh, in wow. less Aww. than one million. Yeah, that that made nine hundred twenty eight thousand. So sadly, but yeah, best horror film of twenty fourteen. Anyway, um, it was Godzilla. That was the number one. Yeah, if yeah, you, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that's uh five hundred twenty eight point seven million. Okay, and then next was um Annabelle with two fifty five million, and then Dracula Untold, which. Josh says not a horror movie, but two fifteen, and then uh, and then that actually is two fifteen. That's not. I mean, that's worldwide, I guess. Or? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, two fifteen. I mean, that that's more than. Well, I guess worldwide. I guess I know it wasn't a huge hit here in the U.S. Yeah, because um, it's enough were, to keep making them. Yeah, I was going to say they they were planning to do to to sort of reboot the all of the classic monsters. Now I don't know if the I Frankenstein was part of that. I thought I, that I don't Dracula, the Dracula one was first, and now they're thinking of they're, they're going to be doing something along the lines of, of, of that with the Frankenstein with, I don't know about Wolfman. I, I know Wolfman came out a few years ago, but maybe Wolfman, and they're just going to almost make them all, and then they're going to have a, a sort of mashup. Yeah, they're redoing, they're redoing the Wolfman. They're not counting the Antonio Banderas, uh, not Antonio Banderas, the Benicio Del Toro Benicio movie. Benicio Del Toro, right. Yeah. Um, oh, they were considering not even counting Dracula Untold because I don't think they had this plan when they first greenlit that film, but it, they are now saying that will be part of the, the remade Universal oh. films. And that movie ends minor, not even spoiler alert, but just a minor, minor spoiler alert. That movie ends in the present day. Um, in the in just a final f- flash of a scene, and so I oh. feel like that's where the rest of these movies are going to be going. Well, okay. And ha- haven't one of you guys told me that 
their plan ultimately is to go the Avengers route and pull, yes. pull all the monsters together into one film. Yeah. And uh, I don't Van Helsing of a mess. I don't know about <laughs> this. Okay, so so those were the top three by far. I mean, the, and then so it goes. It drops from two hundred and fifteen million down to ninety nine million was the next kind of tier, and that was Ouija which I still promised I'm going to review on this show at some point, but I haven't yet. Now, $99 million is a huge amount of money for a movie like Ouija, though. I mean, that's not that's not good for a big blockbuster type of movie, but for mm-hmm. a movie that probably costs nothing to make, yeah. that's, a, that's a huge amount of money in the box office. Yeah, they killed it. And then Paranormal Activity, the marked ones, was $90 million, and then Deliver Us from Evil was $87 million. And then it drops again down to forty million with As Above So Below, and then we got Devil's Do, Oculus, I Frankenstein, The Pyramid, The Quiet Ones, which sucked. Um, under the Skin, Tusk is above the million mark. Josh, one point eight million, and then the remaining one point two million, and that was all for the millions. Um, Anything above thirty million is a massive success for. A low budget movie, like massive. Oh yeah, success. yeah, yeah. And so, as far as the horror, then so by your what you just said, the horror for 2014. I mean, that's six, seven, eight. There were eight horror films that were massive successes then in that case. Wow. Um, but there were a number of ones that were really surprising to me. Like for example, like it surprised me that the Babadook was under a million. It also surprised me that. Um, Ty West's The Sacrament. That only, according to this, and I know it was a VOD release, so maybe that was a part of it, that it was just VOD, but it was 9,000. Wow, that is wow. rough. Yeah. Wow. That's a rough number. Clean Flicks did better than that. Um, yeah, I think... <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, seriously. Um, but I think, um, you know, it is hard to judge those movies. Like The Babadook... That's an independent film festival film that doesn't get a wide release, and it's just hard for a movie like that to – that's going to be most successful on VOD and on DVD and Blu-ray. I know that the Blu-ray was a pretty big success in terms of its release, so I'm guessing most people saw it on Netflix or something and then – Yeah. 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 And, and then the bottom – the very bottom five, The Sacrament, was one – the ABCs of Death 2 and Stage Fright, those both made seven grand. VHS Viral Ouch. was three grand. And the lowest movie of the year, this really surprised me. Rec 4 Apocalypse was only $1,000. Wow. I'm, I'm actually floored by all of those numbers. I can't believe ABC of, ABCs of Death 2 only. Now, that's just box and, office, I and guess. And VHS. That's, yeah. yeah, that. Yeah. That's box office. That's not that's not DVD Blu-ray sales, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and these are yeah, so film ABC's comment of numbers. Death was probably only like in Austin. <laughs> you know, it was probably only right. in theaters in Austin. So Right. Right. Yeah. So but anyway, if you look if you look over this list, just a huge majority of them are either supernatural or ghost type movies and um I just want to, I guess I wanted to whine about it and lament it a little bit because it's not my subgenre, I'll admit that. But I will say, I mean, that's why these Insidious films, the Insidious trilogy is such um, a triumph 
as far as I'm concerned, even this third one is a really good, really effective ghost type movie. So if they're going to do it right, then I'm happy. But, but I mean, I, I just, when we have things like, uh, like <laughs> devils do and, you know, Oculus is fine, but like the quiet ones, things like that, it, it, it just looks like the same trailer, different title. Well, the quiet ones was Hammer, if I'm not mistaken. Was that a Hammer movie yes. uh, release? Correct. It has okay. a really cool poster. I will give it that. Yes, it does. Oh. Yeah. But man, that was underwhelming. So anyway, I just want to get your thoughts on that and see if you guys lament this the way I do. I mean, I am seriously, I'm so ready for horror to take a different direction because I'm I'm sick to death of these supernatural ghost movies. I don't mind supernatural at all. None of these movies are particularly exciting to me. You know, like a movie like The Babadook, if they can all be that good, I make lots more of those. I'm totally fine with that. But um, although we'll talk about that when we get to the canal. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's all what it's going to take is one big hit from a movie that didn't cost much money and then everything will shift once again. Right, and it'll be, and it'll be, you know, once the, they take the focus off of, uh, and that'll be enough. That'll take the focus off the supernatural. And you know, I mean, we had, like you were saying, Joshua, we had all of the the uh, sort of torture porn movies after after Saul was really big, and and of course the um, found footage, the found footage, which which lasted for a long time. Still, even getting some new ones. Uh, uh, Nobody's talking about the next Saw movie. Maybe no. they are as a retro throwback at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, you're right. So, uh, but, and then, and, and of course in the early two thousands, the Asian craze, um, course, with the yeah, ring and, and, yeah. and yeah, they, they, they brought all of those back and did American remakes of those. So, and then there was a slew of them. So it just, it, it goes in waves. It's, it's like anything else in Hollywood. They react to what the people want. Um, and uh, and that seems to be what they're doing right now with with the supernatural. Plus, at PG thirteen, that's big nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean that 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 you can get a big audience with with a PG thirteen because uh, you know you bring the kids in. So the bottom line is that it's it's lucrative for them to do that because you get the PG thirteen, which has you know a bigger audience, and then you got just kind of you can get away with pretty low production values. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I don't know. They may never go away, Jay. Now that they've cracked that PG-13 code, because that's the thing. It's like the next big thing might come along and be, you know, the way Saw did, but that's always going to be a graphic movie. You know, it might be – I would love for Slashers to come back, but to be able to have a PG-13 outlet that they now have, you know, tested and is tried and right. true, there's no reason to get rid of it, you know? True. Yeah. And so – Ergo, I mean, what we can conclude from all of this conversation is that I think what you said, you hit it on the head, Wolfman Josh, probably as far as mainstream theater releases, like the big studio type horror films, they probably are going to continue this course and um, for for a while. And, and yeah. that's just lamentable and regrettable as far as I'm I concerned. I mean, you might, we might get up to Insidious 5, Insidious 6, or... That's why it takes someone, an unknown like Jason Piles, to finally go out and write that horror movie you've been there wanting you to see all these years. Don't tempt I mean, me. Z- zombies, Don't tempt me. Zombies, zombies, you know, with The Walking Dead were big, but it's kind of hard to do a good zombie movie PG-13, I think. 
Yeah. You know, I think you need that 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 blood and gore in <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, despite or... many attempts, it's hard to do them low budget because you and need to have, you need to have that gore. It needs to right. be somewhat convincing. Yes, right. I mean, you if, if at the very least you've got to blow the zombies apart, <laughs> you know. So right, and, and yep. that's and that's uh, that's almost a necessity, and and you can't really do like <laughs> you're right. You can't do that with low budget, and you can't really do that uh, in a PG thirteen. There are some great movies coming up though the guy who made um who made blue ruin and murder party his move his next movie looks amazing they just wrapped shooting it it looks so good i I was a big fan of murder party and i actually bought and watched it yet but just because just to check out um you know his first film but uh, what's it called um it's called the, the green room um, and it's Patrick Stewart is the is in it as well as Mark Webber who was in um, Thirteen Sins who I who I absolutely love and um, the guy, the main actor from Blue Ruin making Blair's and it. it's it's going to be really good I'm really looking forward to it Wow and it's slated Let's see um, Do we have any release info on that because you've got me um, the, it, it premiered at Cannes. Uh, last month so it's it's been shown it's completed so it's mm-hmm. going to be coming soon wow well, wolfman as soon as that's out and available somewhere let me know and we'll cover it on this show right away all right and An- anton I- yelchin's in it I- imogen poots is in it uh mark weber who i love I, as i mentioned it's wow. got a killer cast that's oh, a great killer. cast and it's about a punk rock band that find themselves trapped in secluded uh, in a secluded venue, after stumbling upon a horrific act of violence. Oh wow! Awesome. That That's sounds listed, really good. It's listed as a horror thriller on IMDb. I'm nice. so there. I'm totally there. And you know what? I, one thing I forgot to. Um, I don't know if you realize this, uh, Wolfman, but um, finally, uh, Penelope Spheris's uh, "Decline of the Western Civilization" is coming out in a box set on Blu-ray. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. yeah. I've ne- I've been waiting. That's one of the ones on my on my wish list. that has been hanging out there the longest that I've been waiting to see these movies. Um, and that's coming out the end of this month. They have a box set of like all of them coming out. I think you just mentioned the punk rock because I think that's yeah. I, I know see, that that's a lot of that. To see Mark Weber and Anton Yelchin in a punk band together, that's already a little yeah. fantasy of mine. You know, Mark Weber, he was in the band in uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. He was in that oh, band. Right. Nice. As a guitarist, and and then to add Jeremy Saulnier as the director, oh, it's going to be good. It's gonna be That's good. good. <laughs> I'm looking. I, I, that sounds really good. Well, I guess our hope then, as it has been for so long now, will just remain in independent cinema and in indie horror cinema. Then, all right, our our saving grace. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right, and at this point in episode 57 of Horror Movie Podcast, we'll move into our feature review of Insidious, Chapter 3. I wish you could answer me, Mom. Mr. Atkins said he'd fail me if I was even a minute late again. My mom died a year and a half ago. It's like sometimes I can feel her around me. Mom? You have to be very careful. If you call out to one of the dead... All of them can hear you. Wolfman Josh, which of these Insidious movies have you seen thus far? Insidious Chapter One. <laughs> okay. Which now, I own which I own on DVD. 
Do you? So you obviously appreciate that. Film. I, I thought it was appreciable, but again, this isn't my favorite genre, so I just didn't have enough interest to go out and see the second one. I will eventually see this one because I've made an oath to you that I'm going to see as many of the mainstream horror releases as I can this year. <laughs> but um, being that I was traveling this week, I didn't have a chance to, and I'm forcing myself to watch Insidious Chapter Two before I watch this one. So I got you. Okay. Well, um, well, the first thing I'll say then, because it's kind of appropriate right here, just so you know, and just so the listeners know, even though this is a trilogy of sorts and they're definitely related somewhat, this film right here, Insidious Chapter 3, technically, it's a prequel to the 2010 version, the original. Um, okay. Technically. Okay, so... Uh, and basically, but but the other thing I want to say is, really, it stands alone. You you could watch this film in a vacuum by itself, and it and it's self-contained and everything. Now, as far as the prequel elements, the uh, Lin Shay psychic medium character, uh, we get in this chapter three here. We get to learn more about um, how she becomes the battler that she is, the force that she ends up being. In the right. 2010 version. So we see that. And then we also get a little bit of an origin for that little comedic ghost hunting duo, you know, Specs, which is played by um, Lee Winnell. And he's the writer director for um, this cha- this third chapter here. But, you know, so I just want people to know that, like, if you don't feel like listeners out there, you have to see the first two if you want to go to the theater and see a good horror movie, because Actually, I'm going to be telling you you should go to the theater and see this. Um, I think you should go plan on seeing Insidious Chapter 3 tonight if you don't see Jurassic World tonight. Like, I mean, go see it because this actually, and I'm not a ghost movie guy. Now, I, I do want to say, Josh, I think ghost movies are scary. I, I think supernatural stuff's scary because I, I am a believer. I believe in ghosts. I believe in the other side, and I believe in evil spirits too. I, I think possession movies are scary because I also believe in that kind of thing, which is kind of like a, a sub sub genre of the supernatural and ghost stuff. I uh, <clears throat> see. I don't, I, I believe in an afterlife, but I don't believe in possession or um, ghosts in the way that they're presented in movies, at least mm. typically I, um, I'm still scared. I still, I am, I am as well scared of them because I'm usually wrong about most things. So <laughs> I can very well be wrong about that. But like, I don't like, you know, I've, you know, I've heard of like the possession stories in the Bible or whatever. I don't imagine anything like the exorcist when I think of a possession, but you know, well, yeah. And, and, and some, sometimes, I mean, people explain those, I can't, this is interesting. This is kind of a side note, but I think this is notable. It's interesting because some people who who don't believe in pers- possession will say like, oh yeah, those accounts in the Bible were just probably various forms of mental illness or some kind of disease that hadn't been diagnosed yet. And so yeah. at the time, their understanding was, okay, that's that must be a demon. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And so I think that's interesting, but but no, I I am a believer, so I'll say that, and that's why these movies do freak me out. Now that's not why I don't like them; they just they don't they don't light my mind up and excite me the way like 
a good beastly freak flick would. You know what I mean? I mean, I just love Alien, Cujo. I like horror movies to be fun for me, like where it's fun to be scared, not where it's like, uh, I'm going to hate going up my stairs tonight when it's dark upstairs because of this movie. You know know what I mean? And I know that's part of the fun is to be scared, but like, and I guess there's some degree of fun in that, but I don't like to, I've said it many times, I don't like to revel and roll around in evil. I I just like the, the carnival ride type of fun. So I will say you're really selling this whole paranormal movie movement that you're so against as being extremely effective horror. It can be. I mean, sometimes it really can be like a Juwan. I mean, tell me somebody, show me some listener out there who's not, who doesn't think that's scary movie. (laughs) I mean, for real. I mean, it's just, you can't even, I, I just don't think you can deny it. But anyway, back to Insidious chapter three, I'm sorry. Um, this is very effective, and I'll tell you, Josh, this is what I think will impress you the most. Here's what they do in this movie. Get this. They take the most, and I, I'm talking about the most tired, most worn-out horror tropes, like the most cliched things you can think of, like the things that are supposed to be classically scary, like monster under the bed, monster in the closet, or a character has, you know her back to you and you walk up to the character and then when they turn around it's always a jump scare okay they've taken all of these things and and it was almost like this this challenge that they took upon themselves the filmmakers to make those scary again and i will say they were very effective i think they did it now i'm not saying like it's it's i I was scared out of my mind or anything but i'm like that's pretty freaky they got me there and it's effective. So they took all those cliched things, and I, I really admire that because how often do we make fun of horror movies for doing the same thing? It's like, oh, it's so boring, so tiresome. And in Insidious Chapter 3, it's like, no, I'll show you how it's done. And then they take it, yeah. and then they turn it on its head, and they give you another, like, you know, all another ride. Yeah, it is. Well said. I mean, you simplified it there. But I do think it's important to figure out how to give people that ride that they experienced when they were younger and those things affected them. And I think yeah. this affects me that way. And, and that's, you know, we, as horror fans, we love our tropes. And so we just hate seeing the dumb ones. Like, you know, if they can, re- if they can repeat the ones that work and they can do them well, more power to them. It's just, we just don't want to see the jumping cat for the 50th time. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah, Dave. When I when I hear Dave talk about, it, he has such contempt and disgust for that <laughs> for that screeching cat. That's funny. Every it's a time. real thing, though, man. It's a real thing, and it, you know, and it it's it's what ruins something that like a jump scare that can be extremely effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like with any of these cliches, they don't have you know anything cliche doesn't have to be like like I think. Um, we're very hard on cliche things in this in the current culture that we live in and and uh, fair enough but i think a lot of those things are cliche for a reason whether it's because they really happen in real life whether it's because they really work when done properly and you know it just takes someone who knows what they're doing to, to do it well i mean hitchcock to me is the perfect example he has very few things that happen in his movies 
that are out of the ordinary, but he's a master of building tension and suspense. And so mm-hmm. all everything he does works, even from the simplest, there's a bomb on the bus. Well, that can be well done. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that that bomb on the bus, even though I love the movie Speed, I think the bomb on the bus, the Hitchcock bomb on the bus is even better than Speed. <laughs> like, it's so good. <laughs> But um, anyways, sorry, I digress on that. But no, I think it's a good point. And yeah, it's, it is. You, you really captured the heart of it. It was very succinct and concise by saying that it is all about execution. And a lot, a lot of horror is what we would call execution dependent. And um, this, I just, I'm here to report that this Lee Wan L movie, Insidious Chapter 3, has been done well. So here's the premise, everybody. It actually opens a few years before the Lambert haunting and the Lamberts are the family in the original movie. And so, as I said, it's a prequel. And basically, you've got this family. You've got like an 18-year-old girl. She's getting ready to go into college, I believe. She's got a little brother and her dad. And their family is still kind of grieving. They were rocked by the death of the mother of the family. She died 18 months prior prior to this. So once again, we've got that usual horror setup that I really appreciate, which is um, the, you know, people who deserve to be horrified the least are being afflicted. And, and and I love that. And then they're still grieving. And so this, this girl, this young girl who's 18, she's kind of reaching out to her mother and she tries to still talk to her mother, like in a prayer or as if she's there and, she tries to get her mom to hear her, and uh, and this is in the trailer, and it's one of the best lines in the movie. And at one point, the Lin Shay, the psychic medium, tells her that that's very dangerous to do that because she says, "If you call out to one of the dead, all of them can hear you," and that's the premise to this movie because uh-huh. a malevolent being has heard this girl and comes after her. Now in the film. This is not a spoiler at all. The film, they refer to it as a demon, but it's really more or less just a ghost. There's nothing overly demonic about it, except that it's evil. But uh, this ghost is pretty creepy. Now, there might be some people out there who will disregard the costume, but I think the costume, like the makeup and the look of this malevolent being is very effective and very powerful, especially considering the fact that this girl has um, recently experienced the death of her mother uh, to cancer. So I think that's really amazing the way they did that. Um, But this being, Josh, and this is really cool, in the beginning, we just see this being like across across a street or down the street or kind of a little bit distant from her, and and it will be waving at her slowly. Like, and and it's very creepy. It's very creepy (laughs) because it's not like a high kind of wave. It's a bye kind of wave. And man, I mean, right there, that sets the tone. Um, This film has, there are like a handful of films, like like maybe three films that have like intensely shocking scenes that just like kind of take my heart out of my chest, like more than a jump scare. This has a shocking scene that's just incredible that I really love. And what I love is this malevolent being, like a lot of times the ghosts in these supernatural movies, they're kind of hands-off, 
right? I mean, they will creep and haunt, and and it always makes me want to say, as a horror fan, when I'm watching it, it's like, it's like, so what? It's like, so they're noisy, big deal, you know? Like, like they don't really hurt you. Well, this one does. Yeah. I mean, this one is physical. And he comes after this girl and it's very upsetting, like, because, you know, she gets hurt and then she gets hurt worse and then worse. I mean, he's I mean, it's brutal. And and I really appreciate that. And I will point out this is only a PG-13 film, but it still feels kind of kind of strong to me and, and, and intense. It also has Dermot Mulroney. Do you know him? Dermot Mulroney is one of my favorite underappreciated actors. He was a guy that was kind of like a hunky beefcake in his early movies. Yes. Kind of a romantic comedy guy. He reminds me of a Matthew McConaughey who had this other career. Now we forget about McConaughey's early career because it's so terrible. <laughs> or you think, or like Ethan Hawke even, who I, I respect his earlier work, but he's had this resurgence as a horror actor. And ever since The Grey, I've been so excited about the idea of Dermot Mulroney in horror movies. And to hear that he's in this one, I was pretty excited about yeah, and, and in fact, like, his role is smaller, but I think it's significant. I mean, he plays the father in this movie, and I'll tell you, he is getting older, but there's something about his um, persona in this movie that, like, the, the mood and the persona he affects, this guy's had it, and he's totally just thrashed. He, he's really struggling with his... Um, being a widower, he's also struggling with taking care of these kids, and he's tired, and he kind of sucks as a dad. He's not really doing a great job, and he nails yeah. it. And all of this is really important because, you know, not having a strong, protective father figure to to take care of this girl and try to, like, save her, quote-unquote, really adds to the horror of the movie and the vulnerability that you feel on her behalf because he sucks, and he's kind of clueless and aloof i mean it's powerful and i love it and by the way i should also mention that the girl the character is quinn but her the actress is stephanie scott and she does a fine job just fine how old is she she looks really old in her imdb picture well yeah she's she's 19 in um real life i guess but um about 19 yeah but in the film, she looks kind of young, actually. She looks up to be about, like, 17-ish. But okay. I, I think that in as the so film... So it's not like a little girl being hurt. It's no. like a typical horror movie age, basically. Yeah, but she still seems younger to me. But, okay. of course, I could technically be her dad, you know? Like, sure. <laughs> I'm so mad about that right now. <laughs> but... <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Well, you, it's funny. Uh, sorry, I got an old man moment here for the listeners. Uh, it's weird when the people that you consider as your peers, just as you always have, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm twice that person's age. They could be my child, actually. Like, that's a really scary realization. Yeah. I've had that recently. <laughs> with watching too many movies set in high school at, at this age. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the other thing I want to say that's interesting about this movie is it kind of has what I would say, it either has like, you could call it dual protagonists or a shifting protagonist. Because what's so cool is this this young girl, um, Quinn, you know, she gets so rocked, not a spoiler, but I mean, she gets so rocked that she's kind of, in some ways, out of commission. She's not as, um, you know, free to move about the plot 
<laughs> in the movie because she gets so attacked. And then the, the focus shifts over to Lynn Shay, the psychic medium, and she becomes more of the heroic character. So you got like a victim character. A lot of times the victim has to end up becoming the hero, but it's neat to have this Lynn Shay. Now, I want to give her, I really want to celebrate this actress, Lynn Shay, because Josh. Is this the best thing that's ever happened to her career? I mean, did yeah. anyone foresee. That that disgusting old woman who was in the Fairly Brothers movies was going to have a career resurgence at any like it's insane, right? I, it is kind of crazy, and I just got to tell you this about it: she has a remarkable ability to to conjure the most horrified looks on her face. Somehow, she can put something on her face that she sees. Like, you know, she's seeing something. We don't see what she's seeing, but she's totally freaked out. And she can give me chills and make me scared to death about what she's seeing. So I have to say, she's actually a really talented actress. She steals everybody's lunch money in this movie. I mean, she's very good. And yeah. um, I'm impressed. So No way I would have ever in a million years cast her in anything after like, there's something about Mary or... <laughs> Uh, kingpins or something like that. Like, right? No way. She's so nasty, and she's an excellent actress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, she brings it. Especially, and, and she was good in the other in, Insidious movies, of course. But like in this one, I, I think she does her best because she really gets a chance to shine. And um, it, it's just I, I really admire. Her. So anyway, I just want to. I don't want to go into too much more about it because I don't want to get into where it goes or anything, but it's a pretty interesting film. I was, I just got to tell you, Josh, I was in a bad mood when I went to the theater, kind of. I was not looking forward to this. It just felt like obligatory. It's like, okay, I'm going to watch this, you know, to cover it for the show because that's my job. I'm Jay of the Dead. You know, this is a horror movie. And I was dazzled. You know, because I wasn't expecting much. I mean, how many horror sequels, really, if we're thinking about it, how many horror sequels really bring it, right? A few. A few. A few, but Very not, few. yeah, I mean, not that many. And um, this this does this does just fine. Now, I know that a lot of people have accused me, and maybe this is true, of going a little bit too over the moon on Insidious Chapter 2, because I did have, when I saw Insidious Chapter 2, I had a great theater experience. There were tons of jump scares. And I was really into it. So it was so much fun. And upon revisiting Insidious Chapter 2, yeah, it didn't affect me quite the same way. And so maybe my rating was a little high on that. But I really tried to focus and get this rating exactly right, <laughs> Yeah, which is, which is tricky. But I really wanted to try to be accurate about this. And so I'm just telling people, Insidious Chapter 3 to me is an 8.5 out of 10. I say definitely see it in the theater this weekend when you go see Jurassic World, do a double feature. And um, I think it's a buy. I think it's good enough in the ghost supernatural entry that you should have it in your collection. And Josh, I am impressed with these Insidious movies. Yeah, it's funny because I'm assuming this will come after our uh, theme discussion yes. in the podcast. But, you know, it's funny where I was, you know, we were talking about the Saw movies and how no one's making those anymore. It's funny that um, 
the Saw guys are actually the people behind the Insidious movies. That hadn't even <laughs> occurred to me when I was saying that. But yeah, I mean, this stars and uh, was written and directed by one of the stars and writers of Saw. So that's kind of crazy. And of course, James Wan was behind the first Insidious film. So mm-hmm. um, let me ask you, though, about uh, the director's role. And also, I'm looking at just some of the stills from the film. Tell me about the guy with the Mr. T haircut and the Masters of the Universe T-shirt. <laughs> I, I, the one of the few things that has gone kind of unexplored um, is our Ghostbuster movies. Like, I would love a great Ghost Hunter movie, and that's what these characters look as though they're up to. So, what, right. is there good ghost hunting in this movie? Um, no, no. Like, they're they're uh, un- unfortunately. Regrettably, they are more or less the comic relief. I mean, I don't know if you. I mean, rem- you can tell by their wardrobe. He's wearing a Casper <laughs> jacket. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and um and I people know I'm against comedy and horror. I kind of hate it, but it's not as bad as like the cops and Last House on the Left or anything like that. I'm just I'm just saying that they are meant to kind of lighten the mood and they were in, I'm sorry, it's been a while since I've seen the first two in city. I movie. <laughs> I don't, I'm just kidding. The insidious I I don't know. It's been a while, but they've been in one of the other ones too, at least one, if not both, but they were, this kind of gives their origin. Remember. You don't remember them, but you, you will when you see them. I mean, I know, let's see Lee one L I know was in there. But yeah, they're just meant to be kind of funny. And I guess they are a little bit funny, but they, they kind of get in the way, honestly, when it comes down to it. They're, they're just, they're more or less unnecessary in this film. But some people would argue that psychologically, you know, taking you out of the tension into the humor and then ripping you back into the fear again is, you know, really affecting. But to each his own, I guess. But yeah, their wardrobe is a little over the top, I think. Totally over the top. Especially that one guy, so I, I will say that. Yeah, it's not a 10, but it's 8.5. So uh, are you going to try to check out Insidious Chapter 3? Do they do they have that playing down? I'm definitely going, yeah, they do. I'm definitely going to see it before um, year's end, as well as Insidious Chapter 2. Mm-hmm. So um, this week I am going to be focusing on Jurassic World and not getting murdered. On this little beach hike I'm taking, so oh man, <clears throat> be careful down there. Not seriously. having my organs stolen. Yeah, I mean, I'm I I have dude worried this about is you. A, this is a one day hike into this beach. You like you walk through the jungle. It's totally like turistas, <laughs> or or the beach. You like hike through this jungle for a day, and then you show up at this amazing beach, um, Tyrona National Park. And it's just filled with like ravers <laughs> sleeping in tents. We're, ho- we're hoping to get there before school lets out, um, which is going to be about a week or so. So, uh, yeah, it should be interesting. And if if we can get there before the crowds are there, it should be pretty epic. Wow. Well, please be careful down there, my friend. <laughs> Try not to get my organs harvested. <laughs> yeah. Do not do it. But and oh, geez, I would hate that. And plus, I would be very inconvenienced by having to come look for you. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our review of Insidious Chapter 3. Let us know what you think of it. If you've seen it in theaters, let us know in the show notes for episode 57. Okay. And at this point, Josh has 
a review for us. And I've been so excited to see this movie myself. I still haven't seen it yet. And I honestly do not know when I'm going to be able to see it. So I really wanted to hear you talk about it and review it first, Josh. So um, bring it on. What do you got for us? Okay, we are going to talk about The Canal. So The Canal is a 2014 slash 2015 film. It was released in the United States in 2015. Originally, I believe, in the UK, or at least in film festivals in 2014. Um, it's directed by Ivan Kavanaugh. And this movie, you know, if it hadn't been made around the exact same time as The Babadook, I might think that one of them influenced the other. Uh, they are very similar in some ways. They're also very different in others. Um, I would The three films I would compare this to, it's got a dash of the Babadook. It's got a dash of Sinister. And it's got a heavy helping of Take Shelter. Now, I don't know if you've... Have you seen Take Shelter, Jason? Um... Let's see. Is it's that a two, It's a 2011 or oh. 2012 Jeff Nichols film, the guy who directed Mud and Shotgun Stories. Yes, Michael Shannon's in it. Yes, I have, which, I have seen yeah. it. And some people wouldn't consider that a horror movie, but it is definitely a psychological thriller with kind of some psychological horror elements to it. Um, yeah, I love that movie, actually. I wanted it to be a little more hardcore than it was, but I really like Take Shelter, yes. Yeah, and I would probably compare it the most to that of those three films, you know, it's got, I guess you could say it's got a bit of the shining in it as well. Basically what the canal is about is a family buys this beautiful home and, you know, it takes place in the UK and they buy this beautiful little row home and it's next to this old dirty canal. And, um, the dad is a film archivist, which is a really cool, uh, job as far as I'm concerned, yeah. where he gets all these old film reels and photographs and he just has to watch them and note what they are and, 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 you know, for, for these art film archives for the national archive in, in Britain. And it's awesome. Um, and, you know, and he finds this old film reel and he discovers that his house that he's just bought to have his baby in and, and living with his wife is the setting of some brutal murders. So it's also got, I guess, a bit of the Amityville horror element in it as well. Um, and he's like, whoa, like somebody brutally murdered this, you know, their family in this house, you know, back in the early 1900s. And, you know, around the same time, his child's now growing up and he is concerned that he thinks his wife may be having an affair and he follows her one night and finds out that indeed that is the case. So very soon afterward, his wife goes missing. And of course, being that she was having an affair, people knew about it. Um, he is the prime suspect in his wife's murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of the movie is him trying to protect his son uh, from supernatural forces, trying to uh, find out what happened to his wife. Um, and, you know, and it sort of becomes a very heavily psychological film after that. Again, mostly take shelter, whiff of the Babadook, whiff of Sinister, um, a little bit of Amityville, Shining kind of stuff. But pretty tame in terms of graphic violence or horror. It's very effective in, the psychological, in a psychological thriller sort of way. And it does have one great moment toward the end that has... <clears throat> that kind of when 
they see the Babadook in that movie. It's got a similar moment that is pretty effective in this movie. Yeah. And there are some great scenes along the way, but mostly it's a pretty tame film. Um, I feel bad about my review because I know a lot of our listeners are big fans of this movie, and I'd be curious to hear them defend it. I really liked the acting. I mean, <clears throat> the thing is, is it really almost completely depends on the lead actor, Rupert Evans, who I really liked in the movie. I will say a large part of that is because he reminded me of uh, Johannes Kunka from the movie that we both really liked, uh, Force Majeure, the French oh, yeah. <laughs> movie with the with the avalanche. Um so he he looks a lot like that guy, and I, and I was kind of imagining that actor in the movie the whole time. That you know that Swedish, French, Norwegian, Danish film, um, and um, and so that made him really likable to me. But his 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 character is okay. His performance is stellar, and it's just about this dad. <clears throat> you wonder: Is he really being haunted, or is he descending into madness? And that's basically, you know, is, <laughs> is it sinister or is it the Babadook? And that's kind of what the question of the movie is. Oh, neat! That now, see, everything you're saying sounds great to me, actually. Like, yeah, um, it's just I just I knowing your preferences, I would say it's horror light. Oh, really? It's it's so it's pretty and, it, and it's paranormal. So you know, I mean, I, those things are the things I think you maybe wouldn't appreciate as much hmm. well i know see the first time i ever heard about this i gotta give a shout out here to devin from the horrible get it horrible podcast i love that the title they did um they reviewed this film and they even had an interview with uh writer director ivan kavanaugh um as i recall and i, I remember i didn't listen to the entire interview because i didn't want to get into spoilers but I guess there is a pretty infamous scene in this movie that a lot of people seem to talk about. It seems to be the scene to see the movie for. Now, is that is that something you think is accurate, Josh? Is there a scene that you should see this movie in order to just catch that part at least? I don't even know what movie, what moment that would be, unless it is the Babadook scene that we just talked about. Where, That's, but you know what it. It feels like something I've seen. It feels like I've seen it in The Ring. It feels like I've seen it in The Babadook. It just feels like a combination of that. It's well done. Like I, I don't want to take anything away from this movie in terms of being good in its own right. It just – when you compare it to all these other movies that I'm comparing it to, <clears throat> it doesn't fare well in the same year that Babadook came out for me. Like I, okay. I think this is a good movie that if you like a ghost story, if you like a psychological thriller, if you like those kinds of horror elements, you could have a great night, a great evening watching this movie. If I'm <laughs> trying to com- put it up compared to the rest of you know, the films it reminds me of, I would say it's not the best of those. You know. Okay. Are you able to say, as it a spoiler, are you able to say why it's called The Canal or did I miss that? Yeah, there's just this canal that runs along behind their house, which is the the site of his wife's disappearance. Okay, so that's um, creepy. They're, they're seen walking along this canal many times during the film, um, and there's a, and, and you know it could be called the bathroom because there's a public restroom. To me, and maybe <laughs> I maybe I missed it, but the house to me is the most important location in the movie. Mm-hmm. I guess you could also argue that the public restroom and the canal are also equally as important. Uh, but for me, it's, it feels like the house is haunted. Now that ends up not necessarily being the case. It ends up having 
par- you know, paranormal activity kind of ramifications um, at a few points in the film. But it, the real thrust of the film is worrying about is this guy, you know, going to be killed by a supernatural entity or is he what his family and those close to him should be afraid of in the first place? You know? Yeah. Now, how about this might seem like a weird question, but this is something that really does a lot for me as a viewer. What about the father son relationship? Is that pretty strong in this film? Is it done well? It's good, but the the kids just not in it very much. So I mean, it's everything that's in there is good, but it's not. It's really all on this dad, and it's really about if it, if it is the psychological answer, which is how I take the film. I'll I'll just say mm-hmm. um, if it is if that is the answer, then it's really about how do you how does someone deal with finding out their spouse is cheating on them. Um. You know what? What? What can that jealousy drive you to? Yeah, and that's what I would say the point of this film is. Um, but you know, there are all kinds of other things going on, cool. and and the, and the scares in terms of like, is there a ghost in the house? That stuff's done really well. Um, and there's there's my favorite scene. You know, and this is probably not the one they're talking about because there's one big showy scene that again reminds me of the TV scene in the ring or the Babadook scene the Babadook where they see it. Um, my favorite scene, it has to just do with some post-it notes. <laughs> oh, really? And like, and like some things he's stuck to the wall. Yeah. I mean, and, and they, again, it has to do with the same wall, but it's, uh, he hears something and it's, it's, and you know, and of course they have to destroy you with the audio where it's silent. And so the <laughs> audience is like, he's listening and we're all leaning forwards in our seats. And that's, you know, <laughs> It's brutal in that way, and the scares are real, and anytime a child is in danger as a parent, you can't help but feel yeah. nervous about that. So, that, I, again, I don't want to, to take away from this film. I just I just think it suffers by comparison. Well, at least one last question. I know that um, you may have been alluding to this just uh, like about two minutes ago, but see, when, when I watch The Babadook, there are two ways to watch that as like a metaphorical or as yep. literal and I think the Babadook is way more effective if you watch it in a metaphorical way. Now, is the um, psychological angle on the canal, is that the more effective or affecting way to watch the canal for you? It's a good question. Um, I don't think so. Because I think, I think it works. I think the movie works. I think um, you get this pain that he's gone through due to his wife's affair without that being the driving force behind the paranoia. So I think like you already get that element. And so I think that is where it fails compared to the Babadook because the monster in the Babadook, if you take it as psychological, is a major threat um, it's hard to explain the differences between the films. Basically, just the threat seems more removed from the family. There doesn't seem, other than the fact that this family was brutally murdered in the past in this location, there doesn't seem to be any connection between the danger that the kid is in and the danger that uh, the wife may have been in, if that makes sense. Because in The Babadook, the monster is driving toward the child. 
And that's not the case in this movie. And the child finds itself in peril during this film, but the anger and the, the terror, you know, the terror is being driven toward the spouse. You know, if it, if that's if that's what was what happened. So I don't know. It, it is messed up. It has a bit of that shining element of like, well, someone here killed their children, and so you're also going to kill your children. You know, like it could just be that level of um, connection. But I think the Babadook is far more effective in creating a psychological reasoning and terror uh, behind that uh, non-literal uh, interpretation. Yeah, and you were saying that you you feel like Rupert Evans really pulled it off, though. As far <clears throat> he did as the great. Role. He okay. does great. There's nothing to look down upon about this film. I don't love the cinematography style myself. I don't like the the look or the colors of the film, but it's well done. And there's nothing that feels uh, like it comes up short. It just it just just overall the you know the sum to me isn't as effective as some of the parts. I got you. Okay, so what do you rate the canal then, Josh? I mean, I, it's solid. I give it a seven. I would say it's a rental, but for me, it's just not a movie that's memorable for me. Like, I don't ever see myself revisiting this film, whereas I went out and got the special edition Babadook Blu-ray the day it came out. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, just a different level for me, even though it's very comparable and his performance is every bit as good you know, as hers. It's just not as complex. Like, and, um, and this, and it doesn't, isn't given the benefit of a story that is quite as, um, Meaningful, in my opinion, even though, you know, even though, you know, what he's going through, the idea of, you know, a spouse cheating on you, that infidelity is very, is very real pain that people deal with and clearly drives people to murder and horrific things, you know, in life. It's so it's it's not that it's not a legitimate um, starting point and that, that that those stakes aren't real or valid or big enough. I just don't know that the horror ties in and quite you know like the when you make that connection in the babadook it's like a mind-blowing kind of like yes like moment like this is amazing and i just never felt that um with the canal i get you i see all right so uh josh says the canal is a seven out of ten he calls it a rental and i'm almost always exactly two points below you so i I wonder if i would come in at a five i'm just curious so i i would say you'd be six or seven Oh, okay, cool. But you know, but you don't, you know. Again, like I think the things holding it back are it's it's no Babadook and it's a supernatural film. So, hmm. Yeah, I. Boy, I bet, I bet Ivan Kavanaugh is kind of bumming about the Babadook coming out. Then, if there if there are that many parallels and if people are comparing it, it's not. It's really not that similar as. It's um, superficially very similar, but if you actually break the movies down, there are a lot of differences. Okay, I got you. Nice. Well, that sounds good. Well, thanks for bringing us the review of The Canal. If this was was listed as a thriller, it would be an exceptional thriller. I think for for the way you're going to look at it as a horror movie, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's quite as effective. All right. Well, Devin, in the... Show notes here for episode 57. Give us more of your thoughts. Love to hear what you have to say about it. And I'm sure Josh will respond to you as well. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to that episode because I'm very interested in hearing what Ivan Kavanaugh said about the film. And, and yeah, Devin, I'd love to hear 
wait why I'm wrong because I you know again it's it's a well-made film I, I don't I don't mean to discredit it but. yeah that's called it's a good it's a really good episode they did a great job with the interview it's called the horrible podcast so check what it do out. you think about that Jay that that idea of a film being you know, being good but just not standing out compared to films that it's comparable to how do you how do you deal with that in your mind as a critic or as someone who talks about movies because for me that's that's a difficult like if it's my favorite genre i don't care like if it's a if it's 80s slashers and like this one's not like as good as halloween i don't care about that that's just another great 80s slasher right so if if psychological ghost movies was my favorite genre this is a buy for you like this is a great movie to have on your shelf yeah but because it's like near the bottom of my interests it's just kind of like yeah you know, and and how do you how do you think about that when you're thinking about a film in terms of the way I like to think about it is is it additive to the genre? So with me, mm-hmm. this has got some great things, um, and you know some very unique f- feeling things, but at the same time, like it's not additive in terms of bringing something new. Mostly, it's mostly non-additive. I see. <laughs> but even if it's not additive, I'm just asking you that for your preference, even if it's not additive, if it still is a respectable effort. And, it's a and, great entry. Like okay. if your favorite movies are The Babadook and Sinister, this is a great this is a great addition. Or, you know, if you love movies like and I like all these movies I'm naming, by the way, Amityville Horror and The Shining, but if that's your favorite subgenre of horror, this is a great little lesser-known movie you can show your friends and surprise them that they haven't heard about this yeah. movie. Like well, that feels like I'm selling it the way I wanted to sell it, but it's just it's go. just hard because it's not as good as those other ones, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the way you handled it, just to answer your question, I think the way you handled it in your review was excellent, and especially what you just said. I think that is the way to go about it. Um, like sometimes, if there are two films that are kind of similar and one is definitely superior. And if I think that if there's the possibility that listeners will only go for one kind of a film, like, for example, this isn't horror, but like, <laughs> like if, if, if listeners are like, should I watch Armageddon or Deep Impact? You know, I'll, I'll choose a side of the line. You know what I mean? Yeah. To, to give them the one that they're going to watch. But if they love the subgenre and, and they're into it, it's like, hey, watch it. Because for me, honestly, if they're if there's a shark movie where sharks are eating people or dogs, like any beastly freak stuff, like, I mean, I don't care. Bring it on. I'll watch it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. Cause I mean, in some ways I feel like saying like, you know, this is like, um, sleepaway camp or the burning compared to Friday the 13th or something like you're not going to, if you're a slasher fan, you're going to, you're not going to say skip the prowler right. you're, because, because it's amazing. <laughs> it's just not as, maybe not as good as, you know, the best version of that you can think of. Yeah, I got you. No, I think that's very clear and that's good. So I, I bet you from your review, you'll have a lot of people checking out the canal and I'm, I'm actually even more excited about, I was already excited about it because of Devin and now I'm even more excited about it. So I'm going to really try to get that up on my list higher. We look forward to your rating. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> All right, and at this point in episode 57 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to go to Dr. Shock and his special segment, Classic Horror Actors. Something like that, right, Dave? <laughs> yeah, something that's, that's, again, it should be 
I think somebody had a better name for it uh, in the comment boards, and it's, it's escaping me right now. But yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, what it is at this point. Um, all right. Well, this is one that's been requested before, and I figured I would just go to this one because it's it's actually quite timely uh, because I had just seen a movie featuring this person that I had never seen before, and this person actually steals the movie, in my opinion. And that is Mr. Dwight Fry. Um, you know, he, uh, of course, two most memorable roles are as Renfield in the 31 version of Dracula. And then a few months later, he played Fritz. Not quite as extensive a role, but but still, you know, he's, he's, he has his moments in, in Frankenstein. Uh, and had appeared in a few other movies you know, beyond that, I know he was in Bride of Frankenstein and so forth. Um, one of those actors uh, that, you know, especially for his role is Renfield in Dracula. I mean, there he, it's Bela Lugosi's movie, but if there's one actor who could have come close to maybe taking it away, it was, it was Dwight Fry as Renfield. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of, of the scene, as I've said before, in, in the ship, you know, where you just hear that laugh and they find him under the decks. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just it was just a, a, a very, a very creepy moment. And it still is. And just the whole opening with with him and Dracula and Dracula's castle is very memorable. Um, now, a little bit about him. Uh, he was, uh, well, he was born in Salinas, Kansas. Uh, he started out as a stage actor and in comedies actually, which I thought was, was kind of interesting. Uh, did do a few silent movies, but it was really in 31 where he started to, um, uh, you know, he, he was, he became known. It's interesting in the, in the first, in the original film version of the Maltese Falcon, he played the role that was played by Elijah Cook Jr. in the classic one, um, you know, with Humphrey Bogart. So um, he also, now this, the main reason, okay, the main reason I wanted to talk about him now was I saw a movie recently and I have no idea how I've never seen this movie before. Uh, and it's from 1933. It's a movie called the vampire bat. Mm, All right. And the reason I just couldn't believe it is, is the cast for this thing. It has Lionel Atwill, Bay Ray, Melvin Douglas, and Dwight Fry plays, uh, plays a major role in the movie too. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this cast. Uh, I have it. It's, it's like a, um, one of the alpha video DVD releases, which is probably why I overlooked it. They're, they're not usually, um, strong releases. You know, the quality is not usually very good. Uh, but I was looking and I said, wow, look at, look at this. I gotta, I have to, I have to check this out. Uh, you know, Melvin Douglas, um, has appeared in a lot of, a lot of movies like HUD, uh, and being there and so forth. But, he was in the old dark house uh, that James Whale directed in you know in the early 30s, towards the start of his career. Not the start of his career, not this first movie, but towards the start. And his last movie was a horror movie, Ghost Story, you know, from 1981. Um, but even right. aside from that, you know, you Lionel Atwill, Fay Ray, and and of course Dwight Fry. Um, this movie uh, it, it takes place in in where we're assuming is Germany, because the name of the village is Kleinschloss. 
these there's have been a there have been some murders. Some murders have occurred, and each in in each instance the bodies have been drained of their blood. Okay, mm. so the townsfolk, the town's elders, and so forth believe there's a vampire. Okay, well the 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 the, ins, the police inspector uh, Carl. Uh, this is this is this is what's really a, a tough name, Brett Schneider. Oh, Brett. Breach Schneider, and that's Melvin Douglas's character. Um, he's not convinced. He doesn't believe in in, in vampires, and and he goes to this to uh, to Doctor Otto von Neiman, played by Lionel Atwell, and um, you know his assistant Ruth is Faye Ray, and he's trying to find out. Okay, let's let's find out what's really going on here. Um, but the people in town really believe that it's a vampire, and they believe that the vampire is this sort of simpleton named Herman who's played by Dwight Fry, who has a tendency to keep bats in the breast pocket of his jacket, you know, live bats, <laughs> and he likes to walk around the streets at night. Hey, Josh keeps those in his pants, right, Josh? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so they that, that was weird. That was a weird joke. Sorry. I liked it. I liked it. I was trying to think of something to follow it up with, but it was good enough. It didn't need, it didn't need a tag. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, but bats. I'll tell you what, bats just. Uh, we we have a we have a bat problem in the area where I live. They're all over the place. I mean, we have an umbrella on our, you know, on our back deck, um, the table, and and sometimes you see droppings underneath the umbrella, and you don't know how they can do it, but they can collapse and get up there, and you open up, and there's like three bats hanging under there. Yikes. Um So yeah, we we've got our we've got our issues. You'll be outside, and they'll just be flying all around your head. Um, but anyway. Um, so they believe Herman is the vampire, but you know, it, it comes down to, is he really the one? Uh, and he's playing a character. It's interesting. He plays a character that's sort of a combination of Renfield and Fritz. You know, he, he does have that, uh, he has that laugh again and he, he uses that laugh again in this movie. Um, and, and just sort of, a, a sinister nature, you know, when he's climbing a tree to get a bat out of a tree, the, the one he puts in his pocket. Um, but then with Fritz, he's, he's definitely, he doesn't talk in complete sentences. Um, you, you know, so he's, he's definitely being, he's portrayed as almost like the village idiot in a way. Uh, but, but he just has these, these unusual tendencies that, that are, I guess, just bad timing, or perhaps he's a vampire. Um, my favorite scene in the movie and everybody's good. I mean, you know, Lionel Atwell is is is, you know, the 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 sort of enigmatic scientist and um, who, who you can't really get a beat on right away, and and which he always plays well. And um, there, you know, uh, Melvin Douglas is very good, and, and Faye Ray is in, in it as much, but she has a decent role as well. But there's a scene with 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 Dwight Fry, and it does come towards the beginning of the movie. He's out late, uh, but. The, the villagers are watching him. There's like a there's like a group of them following him, because they now are convinced. You know, there's a there's a there's there's a contingency that believe yeah this this is the guy we gotta watch. So they watch him climb up and pick a bat out of a tree, put it in his pocket, as I said, and then he turns around while he strolls past. He notices them watching him. He starts like laughing like loudly, almost obnoxiously at them, which sends a lot of them scurrying into the nearby building. Um. It's it's just a really good scene. It's 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 a reminder of 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 what Dr Dwight Fry can do. You know that 
that that that tendency he 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 has the uh, uh, just to to sort of bring out the the, the sinister side of, of every character. Um, and in, in my opinion, he is the one. He is he's the one who who sort of he gives the best performance in the movie. Um, you know, for for me anyway, without a doubt. Uh, it was sort of a kind of a tragic life. He he did never get to uh, play. Uh, he, he never really played a leading role in in, in any movie. Um, he, he did, he did appear on stage a little more often, you know, he did, he kind of went back and forth between movies and stage, even later in his career, uh, was even in some musicals, which would be really interesting. And he did do a stage version of, of Dracula. Um, and according to this, now I'm looking at this on Wikipedia, he made a contribution to the war effort. He worked nights as a tool designer for Lockheed aircraft during the war which is kind of interesting. Um, but what happened, he, he ended up, he, he landed a role in this movie called Wilson from 1944, a biography of the movie uh, Woodrow Wilson, okay, which I know 20th Century Fox was putting out because I saw a documentary recently about 20th Century Fox, the first 50 years, and Daryl Zanuck, that was one of his big projects, was this movie Wilson. That was like the prestige picture for Fox that year. And um, it's funny because Roddy McDowell recounts it. He said, you know, he remembers uh, as a kid, he went around, they did this whole tour with this movie. And he was one of the, you know, younger actors. And he wasn't in the film, I don't think, but he was with, you know, Daryl Zanuck and he went around all the cities, you know, just to sort of help promote the film. And he said, he, he it's funny because he says, I saw that movie 14 times and, and he rolls his eyes as he goes, it's just so dry. And I mean, it does... Apparently, it, it was it was a, a big misstep for Zanuck. It was it was not a good movie. It ended up being a very very boring, sort of uh, pontificating type of movie about Woodrow Wilson. You know, I guess sort of uh, that that really didn't play well, and it ended up losing the studio a lot of money. But anyway, he um, landed the uh, role of the Secretary of War, um, Newton Baker, for that film, but he died of a heart attack prior before filming began. So he never was in the movie and he actually died while riding uh, on a bus in Hollywood. You know, he just, he just had the heart attack and died right there on the bus. Wow. And he was only like 44, right? He was not old. Yeah. He was, he was in his, his early to mid forties. That kind of freaks me out. I'm only, I'm only 38, you guys. And it's like, wow, that, that seems really young. Well, I've, I've, I've actually, um, I've actually out, I've actually outlived him by a year so far. So oh, wow. yeah, he was, he was, uh, yeah, he was, he was 44 years old, um, uh, when he passed. Now it's, it's interesting because, uh, looking at some of the cultural references here, they're talking about with, uh, there's, um, there used to be, there used to be a Dwight Fry fan club. Uh, but they say, I guess it's, it's sort of dwindled away by, by this point. Um, Alice Cooper has had composed a song, The Ballad of Dwight Fry, uh, hmm. for his 1971 album, Love, Love It to Death. Uh, it was sung from, it says here, sung from the point of view of a character that, like, that the actor may have played. Um, and it, it, supposedly the, the uh, movie appears in uh, Tim Burton's Dark Shadows, the 2012 movie. Hmm. Um Let's see what else it says here. Um, uh, Jello Jello Biafra mentions him in the lyrics yeah. of his song "By My Snake Oil." 
from wow. his 1944 album with Mojo Nixon. Now, Mojo Nixon, I've heard of. I know who Mojo Nixon is. Jello Biafra is the singer of Dead Kennedys. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. All right. Hmm. All right. I got it. Um, come on, it's, the line is, come on and buy my snake oil till my well runs stinking dry. I'll be your Rondo Hatton. I'll be your Dwight Fry. Okay, so that's, that's the lyrics of that song. That's very romantic. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, but anyway, that that's I know I've had some requests uh, to, to, to talk about Dwight Fry. And again, when you think of him, you have to think of Renfield from Dracula. At least that's who I think of uh, when, I, when I think of Dwight Fry. Mm-hmm. And I know he was even in a later movie that I had done recently. Oh, boy, now I can't remember. Where he played a uh, uh, hunchback. George Zuko was in it. While I'm looking for that, one thing I did want to mention: Vampire Bat was a Poverty Row production. It's just a studio off of the beaten path. You know, not not one of the major studios that would make movies on the cheap. Okay, well, the, the studio was Majestic Pictures. They're the ones who put out, and Majestic, along with a whole group of them, would eventually form Republic Pictures. You know that that. You see the old movies with the eagle there, the Republic pictures. Mm-hmm. So a group of them would form that. Majestic was one of the ones that would eventually form that. But it's very interesting because Lionel Atwill and Faye Ray had a hit with Dr. X. So they did the follow-up film, Mystery of, of the Wax Museum. It's another really great movie for, for Warner Brothers. Well, while that one was in editing, Majestic thought, why don't we take advantage of this marketing? Let's put together this quick, Little movie with Fay Ray and Lionel Atwell will sort of, sort of, uh, I guess, um, uh, you know, sort of glom onto the publicity that the mystery of the Hack House uh, Wax Museum is going to be getting, um, and we'll get it out. And they actually did that. They they shot this thing very quickly. They released it a month before Mystery of the Wax Museum came out, even though that was shot prior to this movie. And that's exactly what they did. You know, a lot of people get on things like, um, you know, Modern Day. Uh, you know, what is it like the, oh God, the company that does for the sci-fi, uh, channel. Um, and, and and like Roger Corman does it where a big movie's coming out and they'll put out a movie, you know, like instead of asylum, that's it. You know, like you have Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunting coming out. So they do Abraham Lincoln, zombie, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, just to try and capitalize on that. Well, they did that back in the 1930s as well. And they use things to, you know, that they, would capitalize on it as well. And it's interesting because Universal, at the time, the major studios, because it was the Depression, they were hurting for money a little bit. So they allowed, they, they had these extra sets that they weren't doing anything with, and they let Majestic sort of shoot on them at night. You know, the thing is they had to shoot this at night. Well, the sets they used were the house from the old dark house and the European village that appeared in Frankenstein. So this cheap little movie has four well-known stars in it, especially genre stars, and was filmed on sets where classic films had been made and was done like bare bones, you know, like that, like very low budget and very quickly and rushed into theaters. And the movie itself is, it's, it's an entertaining film. And I would, I would probably, I would give it a seven out of 10. I, I would say mm. it's, Definitely worth a rental. 
Nice. You know, and, and it's not long. It's 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 exactly one hour and three minutes. It's sixty three minutes long. And what's the name of that film again? The the Vampire Bat. The Vampire Bat. Okay. Yep. And it's it's interesting because a lot of people, even with like the reimaginings that come out now, and and or the re, you know, not just remakes, but the reboots. I mean, even Universal did that. Um, there's no official sequel to The Mummy, the Boris Karloff film, The Mummy. The Mummy's Hand, which I'm pretty sure came out in 1940, was a reboot of the series uh, with a different mummy. Uh, and that is the one that all of the sequels followed along uh, from, was from The Mummy's Hand. The original Mummy does not have an official sequel. So it's just kind of interesting how all of these things that, you know, people look at now and say, hey, you know, it's like, I mean, now it just seems to be more rampant, I guess, because that's all that seems to be coming out anymore. But it is it is something that did happen even in uh, even in the the golden age of, of Universal Studios, as far as horror is concerned. Wow. Plot wise, everything about that, I can't I would love to watch that movie. How hard is it to, to track down then? It's not too bad because you can get it through. What do they call them? This is not, it's not hard to track down the vampire bat. It's a public domain film now. Um, you know, the, the, the copyright was never, it ran out a while ago. So it might even be on some of the sets from, um, from Mill Creek. I'm not sure, but, uh, it's definitely available on alpha video, you know, and I'll be honest, it's a good print. It's not like alpha Video's usual, you know, putting out crap. Yeah. It's a decent print Nice that they have. Um, so it's, it, you can get it from there, but you know, this, this movie, I was making a comment about how, you know, this is, well, we were talking about the asylum, but I also made a comment that you hear anything about like the mummy, anything I said about that. You were saying that they hadn't made a sequel to the mummy's hand. They hadn't made a sequel to the original. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of people talk about like remakes and, and reimaginings and all that. They, they never did make a sequel to the first mummy. They rebooted the this, this series in 1940 with The Mummy's Hand. Uh, and the, all of the sequels that followed were from The Mummy's no. Hand. The right. original Mummy, the Boris Karloff Mummy, does not have a sequel. They did use footage from that original movie for The Mummy's Hand. So Boris Karloff does get a credit in that movie, even though he never actually you know, appeared in the movie. Um, but yeah, the original Mummy does not have a sequel. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. I thought that was kind of that was kind of cool. And it's and just off the real quick, I watched um, an old gangster movie from the nineteen early thirties from Warner Brothers. It had um, it was the first movie that uh, the only movie that had James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson together. And Edward G. Robinson was was billed first because um, James Cagney was in the middle of shooting Public Enemy when he appeared in this movie, and Edward G. Robinson had already been in Little Caesars. He was the big star. But it's very interesting because there's a scene where Edward G. Robinson's running this little back alley casino out of his barber shop, and this gambler, this degenerate gambler, comes in. He had just shook da- shaken down this woman who um, had borrowed money from Edward G. Robinson, took all the money from her to go gamble it. And the gambler was played by Boris Karloff several months before he did Frankenstein. And it's just a real quick little role. He just walks in and he's gone from the movie in a matter of a minute and a half. But it's just really interesting because he's not doing a British accent. He's sort of doing a, you know, I guess Chicago, somewhere around that area. Mm -hmm. And it was just real interesting to see him because knowing that it was months before, because it's 1931. 
it was just it was just a couple months before he was going to be the uh, the Frankenstein monster. Interesting. Nice. Yeah, that is kind of wild. That movie is called Smart Money, by the way, from 1931. I was going to guess it, Angels with Dirty Faces. Yeah, oh, Angels with Dirty Faces <laughs> is actually a classic James Cagney. He was a star by that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's one of the, the, the really great James Cagney movies that with like White Heat and Public Enemy are, are yep. right up there for me. What do you know? What do you say? Right? Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got you. Well, cool. So that's uh, Doc's little feature there on Dwight Fry. So clearly, right, one of the significant horror greats. I mean, the, the roles were few, but they were major. Absolutely. And he didn't even appear in later movies. I'm pretty sure he was in um, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I or it was either that one or Ghost of Frankenstein. I'm trying to remember. He played one of the one of the townsfolk, like one of the one of the you know when you always see the guys sitting up on the the table, the ones who sort of make the rules and everything. I'm pretty sure he played one of them, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of those two films, one of the later movies. Um, and he he appeared in that as well. So he was always sort of there, you know. I, I see here it, it says he even had a role. In um, uh, the the Invisible Man, I'm not sure who he played in that though. Um, I don't remember him in the Invisible Man. He was the he was one of the Invisible Man's stunt doubles, I guess. Right? Yeah, that would probably be it. Since he I was, don't remember him, in he it. was invisible. <laughs> <laughs> but it it has him listed in in the credits. I'm trying to look it up now and and see. He's not on the first page of IMDb, and that's never a good thing. Here we go uncredited as a reporter so and this is two years after dracula that's kind of a shame um although john carradine also has an uncredited role in the invisible man i didn't know that either and walter brennan he's the guy who owned the bicycle that the invisible man stole in that one scene (laughs) got a lot a lot a lot of a lot of big actors that got uncredited in that movie but anyway yeah so that that's dwight fry um uh, sort of a tragic story. I mean, I don't know. It's probably more tragic than, than Bella's, uh, Bella Lugosi's story even because, you know, Bella lasted longer and I got to make a lot more movies. So, uh, I mean, Bella Lugosi had kind of a tragic life too, but it seemed like uh, Dwight Fry even sort of beat him out on that one. Well, and if you think about it, it's really, aside from a select few, the life of a horror actor, I guess it's not always... You know, because the horror genre in and of itself and and the people who perform in it aren't always recognized the way other actors are in other genres. So No, that's true. It's kind that's of a true. shame because there there's some serious talent, but you know Yeah, it, it, it's it and that's true. That's that's what happens. I mean you look at the like the big ones now, you got like the Sid Haig and Bill Mosley and and, and they have their fans and they're definitely big in, in certain areas, but yet they're you know they're not commanding the salaries that 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 uh, even even like second tier actors in Hollywood are probably getting and appearing in all of the the Hollywood productions. Right. Yeah, you I know because and they're, and they're appearing in all of and they're doing what a lot of the horror actors have done through the years, appearing in several movies a year. Yeah, yeah. I think the industry is just a lot different. I think than people perceive it to be and. Very few people make a lot of money, but there are a lot of working actors who are just like the rest of us. They just go to work and it's their job right. and, you know. 
That's that's what that's why I thought Starry Eyes was such an interesting movie. Oh, I haven't seen you it know? yet. I keep wanting to see that. Did have you seen it then? I, I have, and I, I I really enjoyed it. I thought we it should review that well coming made. up here. Yeah, that'd be we cool. should. And I'm actually Maria Olsen was was in that. Who, who I've spoken with before. She was in an episode of. Um, oh, I guess I think it was Planet Macabre. I can't mm-hmm. remember which one where where we had uh, she had picked the movie that for that we had reviewed. Uh, but she had a role in that, and I thought the actress looked really familiar. I looked, I was like, "Oh my God, it's Marie Olsen." Okay, neat. Um, but um, and it's a decent role in the, in that too. She she's one of the two producers of the movie who's there at the um, at the uh, first audition. Yeah, and the one who sort of confronts her in the bathroom. Uh, but yeah, Jay, Jay, it's definitely worth uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I think that was in Bill Shetty's top ten for mm-hmm. twenty fourteen. The yep. soundtrack is amazing and worth checking out as well. Yeah. The so, score. You, so you've heard the score, but you haven't seen the movie yet. Wolfman, is that yeah. what? Well, I mean, I've, yeah, I've, I, I have it queued up. I was actually going to watch it this week, but it looks awesome. And yeah. if we, if we're going to review it, that would be a blast. Yeah. I've, I've got, I've got the uh, album on vinyl and, it's really great. Let's do it the week after um, 28 days and weeks. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. We should, we should come up with like a theme, maybe like movie-centric horror. Like almost that would be like, fun. Yeah, oh, like no. movie within a movie within a movie. We could do, we, like could do, do we could do Demons, which takes place in a movie theater. We could do, what's the other one that takes place in a movie theater, oh, Jay, that we did on? Um, lots of did, stuff. Midnight. Um, Midnight. Midnight. Midnight Madness? No, no. Yep. Midnight. Nah, I know which one you mean. It's like it's, it's Midnight Movie. It's just called Midnight Movie, isn't it? Midnight. I think it is. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Midnight Movie from two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. That's right. And yep. then there's Popcorn, but that one's a little bit harder to track down. Right. Unfortunately, there was there was going to be a release of that, and it got canceled. That's dumb. I would just love to see a great slasher that takes place on a movie set. When I first heard the premise for Death Proof. I thought that's mm-hmm. what it was going to be because they had talked about how there was these people making a cheerleader movie and this stunt man that's like stalking them, and I was like, "Oh, sweet! Like this is going to take place on a movie." Like, it was, yeah, set. it was a little bit different. Yeah, yeah was I was very bit. excited for that premise I made up in my head. Um, I guess Scream Three is. Or oh, is Scream Three would work. Scream yeah. Three is kind of like that. Yeah, Scream Three would work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All cool. right, we got. We'll have to. We'll have to see which ones we. Oh, and uh, is it um, Urban Legends two <laughs> that takes place at that film school? That's a, that one's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. That's, that sounds interesting too. I've not. I've not actually seen that one, so that would be a good, good one to check legends. out. A <laughs> good deep cut there. How about we do this? How about we open it up to the to the listeners? How about you leave us some comments? Let us know. Um, Great idea. Which which movies you'd like uh, like to be yeah. part of this? That that. Horror movies that, that are either movie-centric or take place on a movie set. Yeah. Ur- we'll we'll it, feature review at least one of them besides Starry Eyes, maybe. Yep. Yeah, it, yeah, it's Urban Legends Final Cut from the year 2000. It occurs on a movie set. You're right, Josh. Good job. And yeah. at a film school. It's at a film school. Um, mm. And, the, and, and the, the main character or the character who's the director of the movie is based on Brian Singer. I guess the, either the writer or the director went to film school with Brian Singer and hated him. And that oh. character is based on Brian Singer. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, um, yeah, let us know, listeners, um, which ones you want to hear us talk about. And we'll do it in two weeks. <laughs> Now it's time in episode 57, When the Wolf Becomes a Man. Wolfman's got 
Well, we were talking about ghost stories this week, and so I wanted to find a Wolfman's Got Nards that would be appropriate for the paranormal discussion. And Lady in White is one from my childhood that scared the living crap out of me as a kid. And I've been you know, wanting to revisit it for years. And honestly, there was a time when I was just too scared to watch it again because I had been so traumatized by this movie. The weird thing is I wasn't that young when it came out. But this came out in 1988, and um, it stars Lucas Haas, who – had his big breakout role a few years earlier with Witness with Harrison Ford um, and has kind of had a resurgent in recent years because of um, he played the pin in Ryan Johnson's Brick and has had kind of resurgence since then. He was in Inception and a few other movies, but this is one of his big landmark movies for me um, in his filmography. Have you guys seen this movie, Lady in White, in 1988? I don't remember it. I mean, I, I think I did. Was this on HBO back in the day? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, like over and over again. But it would be like a first time watch. Sorry. What about you, Doc? I actually have it on DVD. It was recommended to me by um, Joel uh, from the old Forgotten Flicks podcast, Joel Robertson. Yeah, Joel. And, yep. And I have not, uh, I have not sat down and watched it yet. Um, But, uh, I do remember from back. I don't know where I'd seen it, but I remember the opening. Like we were just talking off off uh, off mic uh, about what turns out to be, I guess, towards the opening of the movie. I do remember that, and yeah, that is pretty. Uh, yeah, I remember that kind of inciting incident scene. Yeah. of the film. Yeah, right. Now, so this is one. If your kids weren't growing up so fast, Dave, this would be a great one to watch with your kids it's it's weird it's pretty tame for 1988 and for being Uh rated r i will say and it's weird to think about because the other movies i'm going to compare it to all came earlier than this and i would have thought like in my memory it would have been later it's it reminds me a bit of poltergeist but it's not nearly as scary as poltergeist um it reminds me of Watcher in the Woods, but it's a lot Mm. scarier than Watcher in the Woods but it's that kind of scary okay Um, if I would, the thing I would compare it most to tonally are – do you remember the uh, Steven Spielberg television show Amazing Stories? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of has that Amazing Stories vibe and it kind of has that Twilight Zone the movie vibe. Okay. Like that, Like visually and tonally, that's what you can kind of expect. We talk about loving movies set at Halloween. This is a really fun one to watch. If you've got kids – who can handle scary stuff. There's no real gore. Again, it's a little tame. Most of the violence, if not all of the violence, happens um, off screen. But it's super creepy, and it's super effective in creating what Poltergeist does, which, you know, is along the similar lines. I guess you guys talked about no one really dies in that movie. Um, of just creating this suspense from this child in peril, and and that's what this movie does so well. You are put in the in the place of Lucas Hawes, who really carries the film as a great child actor. Like, you know, pre Haley Joe Osment, probably one of the best child actors, I would say. Um, and it's it's interesting you mentioned Witness and that that probably was his, his breakout role. He was also though two years before his screen debut was in a really devastating movie called Testament. Um <laughs> I about seen that the, one. that's it's about a nuclear um it's it's about a nuclear attack. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting one. It was originally going to be on TV. The producer thought it was so good, so he released it uh, theatrically. Um, it has Jane Alexander as a mother, 
and um, you never actually see any of the bombs go off. It's not like the day after, which which came out at that that same year where you see the day uh, the the bombs go off, and um, it's it's just very chilling because you it's 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 a community on the outskirts living with in the aftermath, knowing that they're slowly dying of this of this radiation poisoning. Um, and it's also real interesting because it's a very early role for Kevin Costner and Rebecca De Mornay, who play a married couple in the in the film. Huh. But that was his that was his screen debut. Is this like really sort of? And I remember him being quite good at him. Mean, he's pretty young. Um, yeah, I mean, he would have been really young at that. Yeah, movie. yeah, and but it was it was it, it's really devastating. And so it's a heartbreaking movie. Um, he's a he, solid. Solid child actor. He had a mm-hmm. weird. He's in that movie, which I think is an underappreciated um, kind of comedy drama with um, Steve Martin called Leap of Faith, where he's kind of like a faith healing minister. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that movie is far better than it gets credit for, just because it's not a good Steve Martin uh, movie in terms of like it's just mm-hmm. not it's not an obvious choice for Steve Martin. Um, Deborah Winger's in that as well. Anyway, he's he plays like the handicapped kid in that movie who's having issues with his legs but anyway he's great in this movie he carries lady in white and it's told in kind of a wonder years voiceover um or it uh you know going back to his childhood this (laughs) devastating thing that he witnessed as a kid when he's locked in this closet by bullies at school funnily enough the kids who lock him in the closet um one of them is the kid blinking on his name trying to find it here in my notes but he's the kid who is a billy in um in big with tom hanks like his best yeah. like tom hanks best friend in big he's also ron in honey i shrunk the kids the kind of goofier kid anyway i love both of those right. movies but um he's the bully <laughs> in this movie and he locks uh, lucas haas's character in this closet at the school and in this closet, he witnesses what he thinks is a grisly murder of a little girl um, and is attacked by kind of a masked assailant. Um, he escapes, but it finds out later that there's basically a serial killer who's killed a bunch of kids in the, in the area. And meanwhile, it's being attributed to this lady in white um, who was a ghost and which is a, which is a classic ghost tale. Uh, one of the oldest actually is called the white lady. Yes. And it goes, it goes into several cultures have this kind of, um, story about this, this haunting white lady that roams graveyards or whatever. And this one is supposed to be looking for her missing daughter. Um, in this film, that's kind of the legend and it's based on the real life legend of, uh, of a lady in white who roams uh, this uh, park in Rochester, New York. And the film is set there. And sorry, I, I, I skipped over this, but as I was mentioning, um, it's set at Halloween and it is just perfect in terms of creating that tone. We love, you know, we talked about um, Halloween. Was it four that we really thought that they set the tone of Halloween? Well, or five. Yeah. The opening. Um, Yeah. This, does that far better and it's much more of the film um and when you see uh trick or treat that vampire mask that's so haunting in that movie i th- i'm pretty sure i would say now having se- re-seen this rewatched this film that that vampire mask is based on lucas haas mask in this movie oh, neat. um it, it it's just sets the perfect 
setting for just a scary, scary kids movie. And being a kid, when I saw this, albeit not super young, but still pretty young, you really put yourself in the shoes of this kid. I mean, it will scare the living crap out of you. Now, as an adult, I was I had feared that this wouldn't hold up as well. I, I thought it was going to be a lot cheesier than it was because it does have that kind of like Disney family movie, Twilight Zone the movie yeah. kind of vibe to it. But it does hold up. It is scary. It, it is creepy and super atmospheric, but it is not you know traditionally scary as um, as movies go. It's it's not a great horror movie, but it does have this lady in white element. It, there's this child in danger, and it's a really great mystery thriller ghost film um, that just is a lot of fun to watch. And I think if I had kids who were kind of like 10 years old, maybe like June, like this would be a fun movie for like tweens going into, into junior high. Like a sixth grader could get really the crap scared out of them at a sleepover watching this movie. Um, nice. Yes. And I had a blast rewatching this. Um, I really, really liked it. And I would give it a seven. And I would say it is a strong rental recommendation for a sixth grade sleepover. <laughs> nice. So next time, listeners, you're at a sixth grade sleepover. <laughs> you know what yeah, to there take. You go. <laughs> yeah. that, that, would, that would be a nice, that's another good topic we could possibly do is like horror movies for kids. Yeah, you know, absolutely. like geared towards them. The Monster Squad would be a perfect one to talk about with that. Monster Definitely. House. And what yeah. was the one that came out recently? What, the Hole? Wasn't not the yeah. one with, uh, with yeah. uh, that Joe Dante did? I know that mm-hmm. one was sort of yeah. geared towards. Uh, I didn't love a it, but I, I like Joe Dante. That one made my okay. wife so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it, so okay. it's a little lackluster. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She thought it was too intense. So really. Yeah, that's that's. That's where we are. That's what you're dealing with. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's cool. So Lady in White from 1988. Josh says it's a 7 out of 10. And he says it's a strong rental recommendation, especially if you're going to a sixth grade sleepover. <laughs> yeah. And if you're, you know, besides Lucas Hawes, there's some great character actors in this movie. Alex Rocco. Uh, who I love. Is oh, in this movie. yeah. He's, he's awesome. Excellent. From the God, he's in The Godfather, but he's in just in a bunch of like 80s TV shows. Well, I remember, like, I remember him from the one with John, the show with John Cryer that was supposed to be a, there was oh. a, a big hit. Um, the, the amazing Teddy Z. Is that what it was? Oh, I don't, I, I need to look that one up. I don't know. Oh, it, it, it turned out, it turned out to be nothing. It was supposed to be this, this huge hit. John Cryer was in it when he was younger and it was going to be like the next big television show. Wow. Um, on CBS, and um, yeah, he just ended up going nowhere because I remember they even did a crossover with Murphy Brown to try and try and get the episode. Try yeah, and get he the was show yeah, and he was on Murphy Brown. He was on, he, but he goes back as far as like Starsky and Hutch. He was on Chips. Yeah, he, he was, was on Murder She Wrote. Mo Green in uh, The Godfather. That's right. He was. Yeah. He was Mo Green. My, very memorable. Role. My favorite line of his in that is a. Uh, 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 you don't buy me out. I buy you out. I love that yeah. line. Yeah. That's the best line. I actually taught my kids that line. They go around saying that, just so you That's guys know. I, two of my shows, I just have to mention that he was on that I love, are Simon and Simon and the A-Team were two of my <laughs> yes. favorite nice. shows. And then also Len Carew, if you guys know who he is, he's he's been in big movies even recently. Oh, yeah, the the Four Seasons. I remember him in the Four yeah. Seasons with yeah. Alan Alda. Excellent. He was just in Prisoners recently and... 
he was in Secret Window with Johnny Depp. He was in About Schmidt recently, Flags of Our Fathers. But he's a great character actor um, as uh-huh. well. Mm, nice. Nice work. Okay, this is Jay of the Dead here. I'm recording a little post-production note by myself. It is Thursday, the day before the release of this episode. And I actually ended up finding out about this sad news after we had recorded the show that you just heard. And it turns out that uh, horror legend, the great one, Christopher Lee, has died. He died Sunday in London after suffering heart failure and respiratory problems. He was 93 years old. And we got an amazing email from James the Ripper. And he actually asked if we could do a little tribute. But honestly, James... What you have written here in this email is better than anything that we could have said. And so I'm just going to read what James wrote. I hope you don't mind. He writes, Jay, not sure if you can fit it into your next show, but I am sure the fans would appreciate a few words said on horror icon Christopher Lee. I know you are aware, but to summarize, Lee, along with Cushing, he's referring to Peter Cushing, were two of the biggest stars that Britain has produced and the backbone of British horror. I'm pleased that Lee was recognized for his ability in the later years, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, but it will be his roles in the horror genre which quite rightly define him. His performance in such films as Dracula, The House That Dripped Blood, The Wicker Man, Rasputin, The Mad Monk, and the curse of Frankenstein were seminal and molded the genre. Also known for his roles in Gremlins 2 and The Man with the Golden Gun, Lee was recognizable by his towering stature and booming voice. It is truly saddening that Christopher Lee has passed away. Not many actors have influenced so many generations. He will stand side by side with Lugosi, Karloff, Price, Cushing, and all the other stars that elevated the horror genre out of the grave and into the mainstream. A truly great actor, and the world is a little less dark without him. That's James the Ripper. Excellent work. I loved what you wrote there, James. So, yeah, we'll miss Christopher Lee, and we'll miss the Count himself. Rest in peace, brother. I think that just about wraps up episode 57 of horror movie podcast hope you enjoyed this episode and remember make sure you tune in next friday for episode 58 because dr walking dead is going to be back with us it'll be all four of us and we're going to be reviewing 28 days later and 28 weeks later it will be in-depth it will be hardcore and it'll be a blast okay so before we run i just want to get our plugs from our uh faithful esteemed co-hosts here and dr shock uh what should people check out this week well um definitely the land of the creeps uh, episode the uh the commentary for jay snacks that was a lot of fun with todd farmer uh and of course uh you know greg amortis and uh haddonfield hatchet um we just had a blast recording that uh that's uh should be out same day as this episode over on land of the creeps <clears throat> continue to you know check out dvd infatuation still going strong with that i actually passed 1750 now <laughs> so i'm getting each each time each like every 250 now is like a landmark uh getting closer and closer check me out on twitter at dvd infatuation uh and on facebook now um i have a uh, i think you have a link there jay in the uh, in the show notes for that yes yep. that's right and what about you wolfman josh 
Um, check out Movie Streamcast and Movie Podcast Weekly. Hopefully, we'll be talking about some Jurassic Park in the very near future. <laughs> I'm very looking, much looking forward to that. Um, on Movie Streamcast, I've got a bunch of documentary coverage that's posting right away, um, where I had to do some solo casting due to my traveling, but that. That will be fun. And uh, the Sci-Fi Podcast has Mad Max, Avengers, and a few other episodes. Ready to oh, go. Mad Max. Looking for that. Would be, that'll be an awesome one. It's crazy. Yeah. Are you doing the whole Mad Max series or just the first Mad Max? Uh, they are going to go back and cover all of the Mad Max movies, but this is just a review of the new movie and uh, some thematic discussion just due to their schedules. Okay, so it's Mad Max Fury Road. Gotcha. Yes. All right. Yes. I thought I was thinking the original Mad Max when you threw that one out there. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, uh, that's you, fine. But they're, they, you know, we we reference some of the other movies, but they're they're going to do a full what's it called the, franchise the review. Franchise. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. And Doctor Walking Dead mentioned last week, Josh. I don't know if you heard it, but he wants to um, briefly discuss Jurassic World next week as at the beginning as a monster movie so nice. um I, I was reluctant i'm like uh, on a horror movie podcast he's like hey it's a monster movie so. you know more than any of the other movies i you know not to, to talk about spoilers i haven't even seen the movie but there is uh you know they create a new monster in the new jurassic park movie so all right yes more than any of the other movies which i do see the monster movie element to all of them uh this is legit Okay, well... Uh, Frankensteinian. We shall see this Friday night. I can't wait. Very pumped. And as for me, I'd just love it if people check out our sister show, Movie Podcast Weekly, as Josh mentioned. That is a show where we review new movies that are in theaters, and that comes out every single Wednesday. And in fact, this upcoming Wednesday here, which will be June 17th, I believe, <laughs> we have a huge episode where we're going to review the entire Jurassic Park franchise including the new film Jurassic World as we spoke about earlier. Josh is going to be on there. It's going to be my buddies Carl and Andy and then I even have a special guest who may be a paleontologist. So make sure you tune in to moviepodcastweekly.com and check that out. That's going to be our very next episode. I believe it's episode 142. If you forgot or didn't get around to listening to that Horror on the Go episode over there, Bill Shetty's um, audio broadcast, where we talked about horror genre classification, um, that's worth your time. I'm really proud of that. We really had fun, and I think it's something you should check out. So if you go to horrorontheGo.com and just scroll down, it's the episode that came out on June 1st. It's called Horror Genre Classification with Jay of the Dead. And it's only about 35 minutes long, so definitely worth your time. I hope you will check that out. I would love it if you do. We're grateful for your comments and especially voicemails and iTunes reviews. I know we haven't gotten a chance to cover a lot of that, but honestly, um, just lately it's been just so insane. And I apologize about that, but we have to you know, keep on putting out these shows each Friday for you. And so when things slow down a little bit, uh, we'll definitely be catching up with, um, you know, listening to voicemails and reading some iTunes reviews and all that stuff. So I really appreciate uh, keep them coming because seriously, we treasure it. We love it. Um, also, you know, keep up the community there on the message boards. 
in the comments for each episode. You can leave your comments at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can also send us an email at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave us a voicemail, which is my favorite. And that's 801-382-8789. All that info is in the show notes. You can find all our past episodes, all 57 of these shows, as well as all 26 of the weekly horror movie podcast episodes and all 10 of Horror Metropolis there on our site, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMoviePodcast. And I want to thank Frederick Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. I'll have it linked in the show notes. And I think that's just about it for episode 57. We thank you for listening, and we hope you join us again next Friday when we have Dr. Walking Dead Kyle Bishop with us to review 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. <laughs>